we tend to be a generation that questions everything that goes on. We know better than the experts. We know better than the doctors who treat us. We know better than the mechanics who fix our cars. We know better than the people who come into our homes and do repairs in our homes. We tend to be a whole generation of people who question everything, particularly if you're a thinker like me. When something happens, you immediately go into that thinking mode and you come up with all kinds of reasons why the people that are telling you something are not or don't know what they're doing. Well, sadly, it can be the same with our relationship with God. We tend to sometimes think that we know better than God on how and when to deal with circumstances in our very lives. You know, we often question God. We often question his motives and his actions. Well, the book of Habakkuk is actually a very, very, very practical book in dealing with this. Turn with me, please, to the book of Habakkuk, the minor prophet. If you go to the book of Matthew and go through Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, and Zephaniah, you'll come to the book of Habakkuk. Now, the book of Habakkuk asks and answers two common questions which many of us realize or many of us deal with in our own lives. The first question we see is, Lord, where is the answer to my prayers? Look at Habakkuk chapter 1 in verses 2 and 3. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at the wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surrounds the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk believes that God was letting sin in Judah go by unpunished. And because he was letting it go by unpunished and wasn't dealing with it in the way that Habakkuk thought was the right way, because he was doing this, he thought the situation was getting worse and worse and worse. We see from this passage, he says that there is little or no justice. We also see from this passage that he believes that God is inactive in this situation. He's idly sitting by while all this is going on and all this sin is going on. He sees the rich using their influence to get what they want. And he sees that this corruption and this sin and this iniquity has gone right in the core of the government itself. Look at verse number four. It says, so the law is paralyzed. It's not doing anything. It can't do anything. There's so much sin, there's so much iniquity, there's so much injustice that the law itself cannot move forward. And it says, and because of that, justice never goes forth. He sees the wicked surrounding the righteous with no hope. And he says, justice goes forth perverted, twisted, immorality. All of this corruption, this violence, this sin and this iniquity has gone right into the core of the government of Judah itself. And after God answers this question, which we'll look at in quite detail in a few moments, he asks a second question, which is common to us in our lives also. Look at chapter 1 and verses 12 and 13. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. So he realizes that Israel is God's chosen people, and they're not going to be totally annihilated. And he says, O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You are of purer eyes than to see evil, and cannot look at wrong. 
Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So he asks, he answers the second, he has a second question there. And notice from this passage, he displays a very good theology of who God is. He knows God very well. He says, Lord, he refers to him as Yahweh, the one true God. He knows that he's holy. He knows that he's merciful. He knows that he's righteous. And he also realizes that God is the one who has appointed Babylon or the Chaldeans for judgment in this case. But he can't understand it. He can't understand how God can use a nation that's more wicked than Judah to go out and to judge Judah itself. The bottom line, as we're going to see from this passage this morning, is very, very apparent. We need to let God be God. And when God speaks, and when God does the things that God ordains the right thing to do, as we're going to see, we need just to sit back and be silent and take in all that God is and worship God in his righteous sovereignty. God is sovereign over all things. Now, from the book of Habakkuk this morning, we're going to look at three truths about God's sovereignty. And then we're going to look at what our response should be. How should we react to a God who is sovereign, who has provided everything for us, and who is the one who controls all things that take place? The first point we want to look at is that God knows what is best for us. Look at Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 through 11. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to see dwellings that are not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. All their faces forward, they gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they go, then, then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose, might, whose own might is their God. So we see from this that God is answering Habakkuk's first question that we saw in verse number two, where, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? He tells Habakkuk he should be astounded by what's taking place. He, sh he should be startled. He tells him he should be perplexed. He should be wondering what is going on here. But we know from this passage one thing, that God is in total control because he totally knew who these Chaldeans or Babylonians were. This wasn't just some recompense where God's saying, all right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up this people and do something. He knew exactly what they were, and he knew that they were the perfect remedy to deal with the sin in, in Judah that was taking place at that particular time. God knew exactly what he was doing. He knows their character well. Notice what it says. He says that they are a bitter and hasty nation who march through the earth to seize dwellings that they're not their own. They have a fierce appetite for violence, for conquering, and for putting into submission all those that they conquer. God knew exactly who these people were. He calls them guilty men whose own might is their God. 
Now we know that God uses all things for his purposes. Everything that God does, everything that he created, everything that he deals with is created for his purpose, for his will, and for his sovereign control of the universe. He controls the world's political system, and he uses it for his own glory. A couple of passages that will be on the screen this morning. Uh, from Daniel chapter 2, in verse 21, the Bible tells us he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. From Dan Daniel chapter 4, in verse 32, very, very clear. The Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and he gives it to whomever he wills. God is in control. And a New Testament passage, which we're all very aware of, Romans 13 and verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So God is in control of every government system, every rule who has ever been put in place, every kingdom that has ever been established. God has done this, and done this for his own purposes and for his own glory. He's sovereignly in control of all things. God knows what is best for us. He knows what's best for us every day of our lives. And we see this from several passages in Scripture. God always does what's best even when we cannot understand in our own lives why he's doing something or why something is taking place. Romans 28, uh, 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, those are believers, those are those who have called upon Jesus Christ to be their Savior, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, it doesn't say that in this passage that all things that happen to us are going to be good by our own earthly standards. It doesn't say that. But what it tells us this is that God uses everything, everything that takes place in our lives for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. God can bring good from evil. A passage familiar to, to all of us. Turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 4. And while you're turning there, I'll remind you something that happened in the life of Joseph. In Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20, Joseph said the following thing to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So we know in the Old Testament, in the story of Joseph, that out of jealousy, Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery to get rid of him. They were jealous of his relationship with his father. So Joseph now, they sell him into Egyptian slavery, and Joseph goes into Egyptian slavery, and he becomes a very prominent man in the land of Egypt, devising a plan that can deal with the famine that's going to take place in the land. And what happens? God uses the evil intentions of his brothers to preserve the nation of Israel during a great famine which had taken place. Because when Joseph's brothers realized that there was food in Egypt, they went to Egypt and Joseph sent them back to get his father, his brother, and his family, and they all went there and were preserved during the great famine. So God brings good out of the evil intentions of men. Turn with me, please, now to Acts chapter 4, and picking it up in verse number 8. Cutting into the context here, it says, Then Peter, 
filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man is standing before by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So the cruel and evil intentions of men against the Lord Jesus Christ, God used this to bring about the salvation and the redemption of mankind. We also know another thing about God's sovereignty. God's ways are not man's ways. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, again on the screen. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. The creator of the universe knows all things. He knows everything that's going to happen. He knows everything that has happened. And he knows how everything is going to play out before it actually takes place in our lives. His ways, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and his ways are not our ways. Also, we see that God is always right and does it the best way possible. Notice from Hosea chapter 14 and verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right. The upright, that's us believers, walk in them. We understand them. We understand that God's way is always the right way, and we submit to that will in our own lives. It says, but transgressors, the unsaved, what do they do? They stumble in them. They can't understand them. They don't understand the purposes of God. So what happens? Things take place. They see things happening, and they question God himself. They see someone get in an automobile accident and die. And they don't realize God's sovereignty. And they question, why, how could God let this happen? How could a holy, righteous, loving God allow this to happen? They don't know the God I read about in the Bible. They see a young child get sick and die or get abused. And what do they say? Why did God intervene? God could have done something here. Why didn't he do it? They don't know about the God that I read about in the Bible who is merciful just and caring. They question because they can't understand. They see things from a human perspective. And that's what Habakkuk was doing at the beginning of this book. He was looking and he was seeing these things from a human viewpoint and from a human perspective. God not only knows what is best for us, but God will punish all sin. He answers Habakkuk's second question now. You are, a, in, in verse 13, we read this. You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up a man more righteous than he? So he looks around and he sees what's taking place and he says, God, you're raising up these Chaldeans, these Babylonians. They're vicious. They're, 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 they're barbarians. They're going to come in and conquer us and enslave us and take us out of the land and set up their own government here. You're doing this. 
He's questioning God's use of, the, of, of these people. Look at uh, back in Habakkuk. Look at chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. Answering Habakkuk's second question. Lord, why are you answering in this manner? He says, the Lord answered me. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. God's righteousness and holiness requires that all sin can and will be punished by God in God's perfect timing. Look at Psalm 5, uh, 5 through 6. Again, on the screen, these verses will be. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Psalm 89, 30 through 32. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. And again, a New Testament passage which drives this home to all of us. For the wages of sin is death. But God, in his judgment of sin, and in his mercy and righteousness and love for his people and those who call upon him out of a pure heart, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. God is merciful, and in his mercy, he always provides a way of escape that his people may escape his wrath if they turn from their sin and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord God and Savior. That's the hope that he gives us. He will punish all sin because his holiness demands it and his righteousness demands it and his justice demands it. God is holy and cannot stand in the presence of sin or tolerate sin at any level. The small little sins that nobody sees or the great big sins that come out on the news. They're all sin before God. God knows about them and God will punish them. He assures Habakkuk in this passage in verse number 3, chapter 2 and verse 3, where he says, For the vision still awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It's going to happen. I'm going to punish these people. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Sometimes God's judgment and God's actions in our lives happen a lot more slowly than what we would like them to be. We seem to be a fast-paced people. We want everything done yesterday. When something happens, we can't wait to get through it. Rather than just sitting back and seeing how God is going to work the situation out. When trials come into our lives, trials are made for our knowledge and our perseverance and our trusting in God, we want to get through them. But God has a purpose. And the trial will end. And the person who is in that trial will learn if he just is patient and waits on God. A passage of this, please turn me, please, to 2 Peter chapter 3. It takes faith. It takes faith for us to patiently wait on God. It's not an easy thing. But we know, the righteous know this one thing, that when we wait upon God, 
everything will happen and everything will be accomplished in the right way for our good according to his perfect timing for all things that take place. We're in 2 Peter chapter 3. We're looking at verse number 8. Peter says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, that all should be, reach repentance. So it says that, you know, if God is delaying, there's a purpose for it. God has a specific purpose. And he gives us a hint of what that purpose might be. That purpose is that all should reach repentance. The unsaved person, that he may accept Jesus as his Savior. And the, and the saved person that has sinned and wandered from God, that he may recognize his sinfulness, that he may get it right with God and get back in the relationship with God. And then he says, in picking it up in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are in it will be exposed. So God's patience is going to have a limit. He's patient. He wishes that all would come to repentance. But God's patience will have a limit and we can be assured of one thing as we're putting in this particular point. We can be assured of one thing that God will judge and punish all sin and all iniquity. And I think we can praise God that those of us who know Jesus as Lord God and Savior realize that we have been saved from the wrath to come. It is a fearful thing. It is a fearful situation to be on the other side of God's wrath. Praise the Lord that he sent Jesus that we're not there. Praise the Lord for that. Now, the major theme in the book of Habakkuk, as we turn back to the book of Habakkuk, is found in chapter 2 in verse number 4. And this is what the whole buildup is coming. Habakkuk's asking these questions, and God is trying to show him something. And he says in, in, uh, in uh, chapter 2 of Habakkuk in verse 4, he says, The righteous shall live by his faith. He's contrasting the proud, the Chaldeans. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. This is the Chaldeans. They were proud people. They were conquering people. And he contrasts them with those who trust in Jesus as Savior, with those who, who have God's righteousness, Jesus' righteousness. He says, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, the faith he's talking about here is not just saving faith. We see saving faith in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. The Bible tells us, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. So those who accept Jesus as their Savior have the saving faith. We're saved from the wrath to come. But the just shall live by faith is talking about a continuing faith. You're saved and now there's a continuing faith. You're living out your faith in your daily lives. Let's look at Colossians chapter 1. The book of Colossians chapter 1. And this continuing faith is illustrated in, in Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 19. Again, cutting into the context. For in him, the Lord Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, 
who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of his flesh by his death in order to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before him. So we see at the beginning of this that we're all sinners and the Lord Jesus Christ came and reconciled us to God that he may present us holy and blameless, above reproach before God. We see that. But then he gives us a warning about how we should live our lives. We see that in verse 23. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. You see, our works and our actions don't give us salvation, but they're an evidence of our salvation. And this is how we can know we're saved. If we continue in the faith, it says grounded, we're stable. Things that happen don't shake us. We're immovable. These things that we see going on in the world, and we have faith and trust in God, and it tells us we're not moved away from the hope of the gospel, that everything God is doing is for his glory, and that we are saved, and the Lord Jesus Christ came so that we can have a full life in abundance. Turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 3. This also gives us a great illustration of continuing in the faith. In Hebrews chapter 3, we want to look at verses 12 through 14. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It gives us a great illustration of what continuing faith is. First of all, it says that the world can come in and snatch things from us. And that's what the devil wants. The devil wants to snatch our hope. He wants us to be discouraged by what's going on around us. He wants us to fall prey. And he wants us to question God and God's motives. And it says that right at the beginning. Take care, brothers, lest any of you, lest there be any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. That's what the devil wants. He wants the discouragement of the world's trials, tribulations, and things we see going on. Things we see going on in the world around us with our government, with our economy, with, uh, with, 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 with sickness, with disease. He wants us to be discouraged, and he wants us to question God and fall away from the living God. But he tells us a remedy, and this is part of continuing in faith. He tells us that what we need to do is, it says, but exhort one another every day as long as it's called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. As we see a brother or sister struggling, as we see a brother or sister having a difficult time, we're to come alongside and encourage them and help them get through it. We're to use our faith, which is continuing, to build their faith back up to the level that it needs to be at. We see that in the passage. And then he tells us this, he closes this out. For we have come to share in Christ. All believers are headed in the same place. We all have the same inheritance. We all are going into heaven to spend an eternity with God. And he tells us that when we encourage one another and when we come alongside one another, here's basically what they're doing. We're holding our original confidence in God to the end. Despite what we see going on, it won't be shaken. It's immovable. And God himself will be directing us and directing our steps.
this concept, the righteous shall live by faith, or as the New King James Version calls it, the just shall live by faith, is quoted and illustrated three times in the New Testament. And each time it's quoted and illustrated, it points to a different aspect of how we're to continue in the faith. The first time we see this, and again, these will all be on the screen, is Romans chapter 1 and verses 16 through 17. He starts off by saying something which is very important. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It saved us. We should not be ashamed of our faith. This is the gospel which brings everlasting life to all who believe. It says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, saving faith, to faith, continuing faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So this points us to this aspect of continuing in the faith. It is by faith the one who is righteous lives each day of his life by trusting in the gospel. That's the faith that we live each day of our lives by, by trusting in the gospel and nothing else to get us through it. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. The Bible says, For all who rely on the works of the Lord are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. In this case, it's pointing out this. Here's what continuing faith is. A person who has continuing faith does not live by his own works, does not live by his own righteousness, but he lives by the righteousness each day of his life, by the righteousness and grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the New King James Version says this, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So in this case in Galatians, he's pointing to this, that the person who is righteous lives his life by faith, and not in his own works, and not in his own duties, but he lives his life by faith in the, Lord, in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his motivating factor. This is what keeps him going. He realizes he's a sinner. He realizes he needs a savior. But he also realizes this, that God's righteousness has covered him. And that's how he lives and, pro and goes about his life. The good works and the good deeds that he does are not for his own glory, but as a result of God's glory and as a result of the Holy Spirit working within him. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 through 38. Again, New King James Version. Do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. It's pointing to this, that the one who lives by continuing faith lives each and every day of his life anticipating and by faith that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return and is going to take all his sinners back home with him, all his saints, his sinners that he has turned to saints, bring back home with him. And this person lives every day as if today is the day of the Lord's return. 
First John chapter 1 and verse 28 tells us this, and now little children abide in him. That's living a continuous faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that when he appears, the Lord Jesus Christ, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. The one who lives by faith lives every day making sure that he has the right relationship with God, make sure that everything is going right in his relationship with God, that he's in fellowship with God in anticipating Jesus' return. Why? He does not want to be ashamed at his coming. What a fearful thing that would be if the Lord returns and finds us doing something or, or being involved in something that maybe we shouldn't be involved in. The one who lives by this type of faith, this continuing faith, anticipates this. And he also looks forward to the reward. It says at the beginning of this Hebrews passage, therefore do not face away, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Listen to what it says in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12 from the New King James Version. And behold, this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give everyone according to his work. So the Lord Jesus Christ is going to return. He has a reward for his faithful people. And you know something? We should look forward to that reward because you know what that reward is? That's the Lord Jesus Christ himself and an eternity that we'll be spending with God. So let's turn back now to Habakkuk chapter 2. And we notice in verses 6 through 9, 19 of chapter 2 that God begins to punish the Chaldeans for their sins. God will punish all sin, and he's going to punish all sin when he's ready. Now, the characteristics that made these people perfect for God's judgment on Judah, they're going to get punished for because God cannot stand in the presence of sin. Remember, God uses all things for his glory. God knows what's best for us, and God's way is always the right way. So God will punish them for their sins. And these characteristics that we saw earlier in chapter 1, verses 6 through 11, God is now going to judge them for each one of these characteristics. So we're going to go through this rather quickly because we want to get to the main, the main point of this. The first of all is we're going to see, we saw in uh, chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, Behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings that are not their own. God is going to punish these uh, Babylonians or Chaldeans, for their greed and aggression. They plundered the land and the wealth of many of the nations. Look at chapter 2 and verse 8. That tells us the, the punishment. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of a man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who, who dwell in them. God is also going to punish them for their exploitation and their extortion of the people that they invaded. In, verse, in chapter 1 and verse 7, he said, God said this about them as, as part of his using there for judgment. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice, their dignity go forth from themselves. Look at chapter 2 and verse 10. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. See, these people, they relied on the wealth and the land and the slavery of the people around them that they, that they had gathered, that they had conquered, they relied on this for their own protection. They're also going to be punished for their violence. In chapter 1 and verses 8 and 9, as the Lord was bringing these people for judgment, this is what he said. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen 
press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, and their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. It's never enough. Their conquering was never enough. They were cruel, they were bloodthirsty, and they had an appetite for devouring other nations. Now look what happens in verse number 14 for their judgment. It says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God is going to come. He's going to set all things right. And the knowledge of the Lord is what's going to fill the earth, not the Babylonian Empire. They're also going to be punished for their immorality. In verse 10 of chapter 1. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Shame and embarrassment for the people that they had conquered. Look at verse number 16 of chapter 2. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. So he says, drink, show yourself that you're not part of my people, the uncircumcision. That was a sign, remember, that God had given to Abraham? Circumcision to know that they were Jews, that they were, they were descendants of Abraham? Show that you're not my people and that, sh that the shame that you put upon others, it's going to get turned around and that shame is now going to be pointing directly at you. And the fifth, woe to the Chaldeans, which is going to lead us into our next point. We'll explore that again further in a moment. Is they're going to be punished for their own idolatry. Now we know from what we saw that God punishes, God knows what's best for us, that God is going to punish all sin, and we also see a third point, is that God is alive and God is active in the lives of the world, and in the, not only believers, but in the lives of everyone in the world. Exodus chapter 20, in verses 3 from six, through 6, on the screen, God said this, he couldn't have made it any plainer. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God could not have been any plainer about his requirement for his creation. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not trust in those gods. You shall not worship those gods. You shall not exalt those gods. And he says that he's a God who will deal with that sin, he says that where he will punish. He, he's a jealous God. He'll visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Those who hate me are the ones that don't keep his commandments. But then he says, but showing steadfast love. God's love is steadfast love. It's immovable. Jesus paid for our sins. God loves us. He's going to complete the work 
that was started on our salvation to bring us to glory. But showing my steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now in Habakkuk chapter 1, in verse 11, we saw the idolatry that had taken place in the lives of the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. Notice what it says. Then they will sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men. Guilty of what? Guilty of doing what God didn't tell them to do. Whose own might is their God. So here's what they did. They had faith thought that they were the God. They were the one that was in control. It was their might that was sustaining and keeping all things. This was idolatry. They were trusting in their own might to do things and not in the living God to get these things done. The fifth woe. Look at verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2. Again, God being very specific in his word about the worship of idols and very specific in his word, as we saw in Exodus chapter 20, of the result of this. Listen to what he says. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Right there we see in Exodus chapter 20. It's a direct violation. It's a direct violation of God's word. Making an idol and worshiping something that you created. Isn't that the utmost in pride? God is the creator who created all things. Can a man think that he can create something and then worship it as if it's God? That's the reverse of what the Bible says. We worship the creator. This is a man worshiping his own creation. It's the exact opposite of what God commanded, of what God had commanded to take place. It tells us that these idols are worthless. The Babylonians are condemned for making ornate gold-laden idols that they were now worshiping as their own gods. These were testimonies to their own power and might. These idols, it says, are worthless. They're teachers of lies. We can't learn anything from them. They can't help us. They can't teach us anything. It tells us that they are silent. They're speechless. They can't say anything. They can't do anything. They can't help us in any ways. And it says they're dead. They're dead. There's no breath at all within them. We now get a breath of fresh air and a contrast. As we look at chapter 2 and verse number 20, it tells us this. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. The Lord, Yahweh, I am, the self-existent one as he identified himself to Moses in Exodus. God has always existed. God will always exist. He's, he's, letting, he's letting Habakkuk know that. The extreme opposite of all the other gods. Notice what it says, that he is in his, it says the Lord is in alive, sitting enthroned in his holy temple, and he alone rules over that creation that he created. We worship him. We don't worship something we create. We don't worship our grass and our yard as nice as it can be. We don't worship our flower beds as beautiful as they can be. We worship the beauty of the Lord who created us. That's what we worship. Psalm 11, 4 through 7, tells us this exact same thing again. The Lord is in his holy temple. 
The Lord is on the throne in heaven. He's on the throne. You know what that means? He's in his position of rulership. His sole position of rulership. It tells us his eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous. His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. God is alive and God is active and God is on the throne of heaven where he has been from eternity past where he will be all through eternity ruling and reigning and directing the course of history as only he is qualified to see fit. Notice what it tells us our response should be to God's sovereign rule. It tells us all creation must keep silent before him. You know, when God's word says something, there's no way to contradict it. You can try all you want to come up with excuses of why you shouldn't do it or why you shouldn't do it. If it's written in God's word, it's the truth, and it's the only truth, and it's something we need to take heed to obey because that's the truth. We need to keep silent before God. We need to consider his awesome, holy nature, who he is. We need to consider that, realizing his sovereignty, over all his creation. Psalm 46, 10 and 11, the Bible tells us, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He's our place of refuge. God alone, we said, speaks the truth in his word. And like God his word is alive and active in the world today. Notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, just like God, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, in discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God is involved in our daily lives, ruling and reigning, speaking to us through his word and giving us the guidance we need through his word. God's word like God himself. Regardless of what people may say today, God's word and God is alive and active in the word, word today. Silence. God says it, we believe it, and we should obey it. The fourth point we want to look at this morning is that this leads us to the only logical response that we can have to God's sovereignty. We know that God knows what is best for us, we know that God will punish all sin. We know that God is alive and active, and that leads us to our only respect, uh, acceptable response to God's sovereignty, which is God is worthy of our praise, worship, trust, and faith. Pastor Bill read chapter 3 this morning, and we're going to look at it again. First of all, Habakkuk's response is what our response should be, praise and worship of God. He praises God, first of all, for his person. Look at Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning in verse 2. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord. Do I fear? In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Notice what he says. He says, O Lord, his theology is still there. He recognizes God as Yahweh, as the creator, as the ruler and the reigner. And he says that he's 
he's learned something. He's learned something from the knowledge of God, and that was to fear God, to fear God's wrath, to fear God's judgment. But he also tells us something else he knows about God, that in wrath, God remembers he is merciful. Picking it up in verse 3, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Salah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plagues followed at its heels. He praises God for his person. Nothing compares to the majesty and glory of God. It says that his splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. In chapter 3, verses 6 through 11, recalling God's past demonstrations of power in Israel's history, he praises God for his power. Nothing compares to the power of God. Pick it up in verse 6. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His ways were the everlasting ways. I thought the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped them from sheath. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and ride. The raging waters swept on. The, the deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows they sped. At the flashing of your glittering spear. He looked and shook the nations. That's going to happen again, isn't it? There's going to be a day when God is going to return and everything on this world is going to shake and quiver and recognize and proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord God and Savior. They're going to recognize that he was the one that God sent to rule and reign. And every knee is going to bow. We're going to bow as our glorious Savior. Bow before him in humble submission. But there's those that are going to be forced to bow and recognize him in his sovereignty. He praises God for his plan. Look at verses, uh, chapter 3, verses 12 through 16. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, Rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret, you trampled the sea with your horses, the, sur the surging of mighty waters. Habakkuk's response, I hear in my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. He was patient. And he learned that he must live by his faith, his continuing faith, trusting in God's sovereign control. Again, we see that an amazing verse that you hear and body trembles. The lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Did you ever read a passage of scripture and see yourself and realize who you are? And then realize that God still loves you? And it makes you stop and think and quiver and recognize 
your own sinfulness and see the wide gap between God's righteousness, justice, and holiness in your life. But God still loves you. And God is still going to bring you back home to heaven. When he looks at us, he does not see us as defeated sinners, but as God's chosen people who share in Jesus' victory. Habakkuk was steadfast in his faith. He realized everything God was, and he realized he must wait on the Lord. His faith was steadfast and immovable and trusting. And now we see, as we conclude this chapter and conclude this morning, we see that Habakkuk now rejoices in God alone. Notice what it says beginning in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, nor the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like deer's strength, like deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Despite the circumstances we find ourselves in, and we find ourselves a lot of times in really difficult circumstances, famine, war, and pestilence, things going on in our lives, Tom Brady in Tampa Bay, the Red Sox starting off 0-3, we find ourselves in these difficult circumstances in our lives, but we know this, and we can trust in this, that God alone is our refuge. He is our place of comfort, security, and strength. We rejoice in him. We rejoice not in the circumstances, good or bad, but in the God who's in control over those circumstances. And I love what he says as he finishes this up. In verse 19, God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Did you ever notice the foot of a deer? It's a hoof. And it's designed specifically to climb up on high places. It's designed specifically for that. Well, that's what God does to our feet. No matter how high the mountain is that we need to climb in this life, God strengthens our legs and our feet and makes our feet able to always stand on solid, firm ground. You know what the solid, firm ground is? Our trust, faith, and love of Jesus. Regardless of what's going to happen in this life, we're going to heaven. Each and every one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's a biblical promise. That's what we stand on. That is our deer's feet that makes us climb the mountains that sometimes seem impossible. God has not forsaken us when we go through difficult times. He's right there with us, preserving us, alive and active, ruling and reigning over his whole creation. Hebrews 13, 5 tells us this, Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And like we see in the book of Habakkuk, like Habakkuk, our response is, we rejoice in a holy, merciful, and sovereign God. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that you are sovereign over the whole universe. And that everything that happens and everything that takes place happens because you have ordained it, because it's your will. Help us, Father, to take refuge in you during our difficult times. Help us, Father, to be equipped through our scripture reading and our gathering together to be ready when the difficulties arrive. You will strengthen us. You will preserve us. You will give us all that we need to overcome. 
Father, help us to submit to your perfect will for our lives and for the ages. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.